Morning, everybody. Um, right, we're in Ezekiel, uh, the first bit, 1 to 24. So we're just going to quickly read all of that, and then it'll be time for the church meeting. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I am going to do a bit of an outline. Um, I loved what Dennis did the other week, where he took us through all of Jeremiah and all the things. And I love how Dennis says Jeremiah and Isaiah and Noel. It's all people I haven't heard of, but they're in there. Um, I love it. Anyway, I'm going to do a little crackly, sure. Little overview of Ezekiel. Uh, I've read ahead to chapter 24 because that's what I'm preaching on this morning, but you guys are only up to 11, I think, uh, this morning if you're following our Bible plan. One of the things I love about reading the Bible is when you get a hang of or get the hold of the story as a whole. So it's not about just this one book by itself that gives you some info, because you can really easily take stuff out of context in the Bible, and we've seen that over history. This one is also crackly. Do you want me to use Matt's mic? Carry on. Um, over history, we've seen that people take things out of scriptures and holy books from every tradition, and they use those maybe a little bit out of context to make their own point or to persecute others, and uh, that's not what we're about. So uh, when you get, when you read the whole Bible and you understand how things link together, sometimes that makes more sense of the story. And I think the next time through, when we do our uh, Bible in two years, we're doing it chronologically. Does it start in January? which is my favorite way to read the Bible because you get bits of like the history and then you get a prophet who's speaking into the history. And before you were like, oh, I'm sorry, that prophet is like 10 books away. How is this happening now? But actually that prophet was speaking right into that history with that king and Ezekiel is one of those. So Ezekiel is a Levitical priest, right? So he's of the tribe of Levi. He's, when he was in Jerusalem, he would have been in the temple doing rituals and all that stuff. But he's about 30 years old when we start this, but he's already in exile. So the Jews uh, who were living, or the Israelites who were living in uh, all over the place, but in the promised land, get taken into exile. And he's one of those. Now, one interesting thing that it says in two kings about Nebuchadnezzar, it says, Nebuchadnezzar carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and fighting men, all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. So Ezekiel is one of the ones who is, he's not a poor person, he's a Levitical priest, he had some use to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar left people in the land who were poor because they could sort of pick up the pickings of the land and they weren't going to rebel, they weren't the fighting men, they weren't the leaders, they were sort of the people who were just left. They didn't cause him any problems. Ezekiel wasn't one of those. So he's carried off, he's already in exile. The other people who are around Ezekiel at the time would be Jeremiah. So we've already had, we've already read all the way through Jeremiah and we've had uh, sermons about Jeremiah. So we already know about what's going on there. But Ezekiel is around at the same time as Jeremiah. Also Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And one interesting thing that I read this week that Ezekiel might have been the person. I feel like this is speculation, but I read it. I'm sharing it. Ezekiel might have been the person that uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego took advice from about how they were to live in the king's palace. Now, we haven't got to Daniel, so you don't know this part of the story yet, some of you, some of you will, but they're like, oh, should we eat all this fancy food or should we just have water and um, eat normal things? And someone, maybe Ezekiel, said, honor God. And they were like, oh, okay, let's do that. So maybe it was him, who knows? And Habakkuk, we're gonna get to Habakkuk. 
he's a bit further on. But these guys are all speaking at the same time to the same people, or the Israelites, different pockets of them. So Ezekiel is prophesying to the Israelites who are already in exile. He's probably with a small community uh, already in exile, so he's speaking to them, but he's also, his message is for everybody, all the Israelites everywhere. And his job uh, was a tricky one. They were in exile thinking, any minute now, we're going to be rescued because we are the chosen people. They'd already been there five years. Any minute now, God is going to rescue us. We're going to get back to Jerusalem and everything's going to be okay. And Ezekiel's job was to say to them, that isn't actually what's going to happen. And also, it's sort of your own fault. Oh, but also, there is hope, but actually that's not my remit. That's another week. I'm the first bit where he's like, no, that's not going to happen. Sorry, that's not where we're at. He's also recognized Ezekiel and Islam. So three major world religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all think about Ezekiel. God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, listen carefully and take to heart all the words I speak to you. Go now to your people in exile and speak to them and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, whether they listen or fail to listen. Oof. That's a bit of a kick in the teeth for a prophet, isn't it? They aren't going to listen, or maybe they will. But listen, whether they listen or not, this is your job. If I, you know, when I'm hearing from God, if that's what God is saying to me, I'm thinking they're not going to listen. Why would he warn me about that if they are going to listen? They're obviously not going to listen, so I'm in for a hard time here. Basically, God gives Ezekiel a heads up. This is, they're not going to enjoy what you have to say. Uh, but whether they listen or not, your job is just to faithfully tell them what I'm going to tell you. So Ezekiel already knows this is going to be mad. But... God is gracious, right? He's good. So even though he's just said to Ezekiel, listen, whether they listen or not, here's an epic encounter with my glory so you know that I'm real and the glory is real and this absolutely incredible God, the throne in heaven, so that you know that all of that is real. Here is an epic encounter with me so that even if they listen to you or don't listen to you, it's not going to shake your faith because you have encountered me. Now, I've been a Christian for a long time. I think I became a Christian first when I was four, under the table in my mum and dad's dining room, because I'd been at Sunday school, and they were like, if you don't do that, and then you get hit by a bus, what's going to happen? So I was like, right, I don't really come in contact with buses, but I, should, I lived in the country, there were no buses. Uh, I was like, right, I should probably sort that out. So I became a Christian at four, but then every youth event I went to all my life as a teenager growing up, I became a Christian again. I was always at the altar call. There was me running down the aisle, always. You can imagine. I'm a joiner in there. And I got saved lots and lots of times because my heart responded to this God. And I've had some epic encounters with God where I have shaken to my core because I felt loved. That's pretty much always what it is. I feel this overwhelming sense of love and then I shake or I cry or I lie on the floor or I don't know what I do. Lots of things. But I've had epic encounters with God. So think about your journey Think about your epic encounters with God. That's God's grace so that we know. I could never say, I don't think God is real. Because how would I explain my life? 
I just couldn't. So the epic encounters of God are a little bit of God's grace to us to say, listen, you're going to carry something of who I am. You're going to carry my word to these people. You're going to carry my story. And here's an epic encounter so that you can never say. Imagine if Ezekiel was like, well, I don't really know what happened there, but I don't, you know, maybe that was just I was having a, I was having a bad day. He had an epic encounter. After that, a lot of weirdness ensues. So then we read on in Ezekiel, Ezekiel starts acting out all these things. He starts behaving like a right weirdo. Before this, he's just in the temple. People come to him. They bring their sacrificial offering. He administers the, you know, the, the sacraments and everything to them. And he's doing all that stuff in the temple. And he's probably just a normal guy, just going about his normal life. After he has an epic encounter with God, weirdness ensues. He starts lying on his side, tied up, cooking his food over poo. He starts doing stuff with his hair he's all of these things happen you're gonna you know we've already read some of that but you're gonna come across more of it as you get into Ezekiel weirdness ensues other times he gets moved by the Holy Spirit to somewhere else physically just moved his whole body himself he's the Holy Spirit's like come here he's like all right over there Woo. amazing But as we read these chapters 1 to 24, it's pretty hard going. Because what Ezekiel is saying to the people is, you have rebelled, and now God is going to take you into exile because he has tried to tell you over and over and over again, live like this, this is what I require of you, do these things, and I will give you everything you need, land flowing, milk, honey. I would hate that. Imagine you're in the street, milk and honey just pouring around. I think that must be figurative because that's not a good image for me. I'm like, I don't want that, but other things. Uh, goodness, let's talk about blessing and provision and goodness, right? That's what he's actually saying. It's not about it, surely. can't be about milk and honey. Anyway, Ezekiel's saying to them, listen, this hard stuff, you guys are already in exile. Jerusalem is going to be besieged, and all of those people are going to be carried into exile. They're thinking, oh, the people in Jerusalem, they're going to be okay, because God gave us that land, and we're going to be fine. We're going to get back there. God is saying, you are going into exile. Those people are going into exile because you have not obeyed me. I have given you very clear things that you need to do. And you have said, well, hold on, these other people are just building things out of wood. And then they're worshiping them. I want to do that. Oh, these people are sacrificing their children in a fire. I think I'd rather be involved in that. In Ezekiel 5, I've enlisted Claire to be my reader because there's a lot of scriptures. So, yeah. I've enlisted Claire to be a reader. So Ezekiel 5, Claire's going to read to you. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations, with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness she has rebelled against my laws and decrees, more than the nations and the countries around her. She has rejected my laws and not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you, and you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. Because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. 
Wow. God says to his own people, you have been more unruly than the nations around you. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nation around you. Imagine God's heart for his people. He loves them. He wants to give them good things. He's given them this way of being so that they can access all of these good things. And yet they are turning away from him and they are being more unruly. They are not even living up to the standard of the nations around them. How far have the Israelites fallen? How far away from who God wants them to be are they? God's heart is broken. Matt talked a few weeks ago about in Jeremiah. And uh, in Jeremiah 2, it says, has a nation ever changed its gods? So he's saying to the Israelites, like, how come you're just swapping gods? These other nations, they just keep theirs. They keep the same God. They worship the same. At least they are faithful to the same God. You take any old one that comes along. You hop on whatever bandwagon happens to Russell Pass that seems to have the best offering. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. If you want a whole unpacking of that, Matt did it a few weeks ago, worth a listen. But it's the same message from Ezekiel. What are you doing? You have the glorious God and yet you are running after any God that is available to you in any nation. All of them swapping and changing. You just take anything that comes along. And yet I am the glorious God. What are you thinking? In Ezekiel 20, we're not going to read it, but that is the full story of Israel's rebellion and God's repeated attempts. Because the elders who are in exile come to Ezekiel and they're like, hey, you're a prophet, prophesy. <laughs> I was at a comedy gig on Friday night and he said, that's the only job where when you tell people what you do, they ask you to prove it. I'm like, oh, think you're a comedian, tell us a joke. I imagine prophet is the same. <laughs> if you're a prophet and you're like, oh, I'm a prophet, people will be like, go on prophesy. <laughs> I didn't shout that out in the gig because you don't ever make a noise at comedy gigs in case they pick on you. But in Ezekiel 20, it gives you the full story of Israel's rebellion and God's repeated attempts to bring them back all of the time. And remember that bit at the start, you've already read this if you're keeping up with us, but at the start, God says to Ezekiel, lie on your side for this many days for the sins of the northern kingdom. Lie on your side for this many days for the sins of the southern kingdom. And for each day is a year of their rebellion. And if you add those up together, that is 430 years when they're in Egypt, God says, give up the Egyptian idols and worship me. And they don't. And he's like, oh, I'm going to destroy you. And then he's like, no, for my name's sake, I won't. When they were in the wilderness, he says, worship only me. I'm the one true God. They make an idol. He's like, oh, I'm going to abandon you, you terrible people. And he's like, oh, no. Okay, I love you. And I've chosen you. I won't. He gave them the law. They went after idols. 
the kids rebelled. He told you, so the, the people come out into the wilderness after Egypt and all of those people rebelled and built the cow and they built the, what was it? It wasn't a cow. A, yeah, golden calf, golden cow, same. I like cow better. Uh, built a cow. <laughs> and he says to them, you are a rebellious people. You won't go into the promised land. So they did get some punishment there. And he's like, but all your kids will go. And he says to the kids, hey, you guys, don't be like your parents. Follow me. Be faithful to me and I will be faithful to you and we'll get into this land. What did they do? Rebelled. What is wrong with them? Don't feel so frustrated. I feel so frustrated. I'm like, look, and maybe this is the benefit of hindsight, but I'm looking at it thinking, we've got this glorious God. All you've got to do is obey him, follow these things. And they're just like, nah, what about this thing made of wood over here? It looks fun. I'm like, but you could have made that. It's now, with the benefit of hindsight, seems ridiculous. On and on. How broken must God's heart be? Hundreds of years of this, of God saying, just follow me, just worship me, just do the things that I've said and everything will be well for you. Hundreds of years, they mess it up time after time after time. Idiots. But I am just the same. How many times has God said to me, do this, be like this, follow this way, honor me in this way. And I've gone, yeah, great idea, God. And I do it for a bit and then I waver and I forget or I, you know, drift away. That's why I got saved so many times. I don't actually think I did get saved. I got saved once. But that's why I resubmitted my life to God so many times because I kept giving it all to him and then be like, but I'll just have this bit back. Then I'd get in trouble and I'd have to be like, mm, no, yes, let's give it all back. So I'm in the same exact cycle. You and I are probably in the same exact cycle as the Israelites. And it's so frustrating to me that I am like that because I'm like, listen, I have encountered you. I know that you are a glorious God. I have felt the love of God wash over my body in a physical way that has made my insides shake. And yet sometimes I'm still disobedient. Sometimes I still don't do the things that he tells me to do and I annoy myself. Anybody relate? Praise the Lord, I'm not alone. So Ezekiel comes to the people and he's talking to them about obedience. And he's not just talking about national obedience, although he is. He's saying as a nation, we have royally messed this up. Let's get back to God. But he's also talking about individual obedience. He introduces that as a theme. He says, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteous of the righteousness, no, the righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. So he's talking not just nationally, but also individually to people to say, listen, this is important that you on an individual level get on board. Because it might have been easy as a nation if you were like, well nationally most people are doing the right thing most people are doing that and I'm part of the nation so I'm just going to lump myself in there but he said oh it's more than that it's got to be you as well each of you a nation isn't just something over there that you're a part of a nation is you but like church isn't it like we talk sometimes about church or oh, the church should do this we are the just news flash we are the church the church doesn't exist without people a nation doesn't exist without people a church is not a concept in and of itself. It's just a collection of people. So if each of us is engaged in doing things, that's part of it. So a church, we can 
have a vision about what our church is going to do, but if each of us individually isn't signed up to that, then that's a bit of a nonsense, isn't it? Like this building isn't going to do something. We are. We are the church. The Israelites are petulant. They're like, well, I don't think that's fair. And I also recognize that (laughs) in myself. I'm like, God, what is this discipline you're visiting upon me? That's not fair. In this way, I'm really faithful to you. And in this thing, I'm really faithful to you. And yet, I feel like I'm being disciplined. And I don't think that's fair. I feel like I'm giving you an insight into my childhood. There was some stomping. And yet, God requires obedience, and yet, there is grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, right? Hundreds of years of God saying, please live this way. You're not going to? Okay, I'm cross. Here's a consequence. They get it, they go back over and over. But there is always grace. So even in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel is saying, God is saying through Ezekiel, this is what's going to happen. He's also saying, and yet there will be a remnant. Yet in the future there is this hope. Yet, but that's further on in Ezekiel. We're not at that point today. But in Ezekiel 18, 30 to 32, It says, therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses, and then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed, and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So even at this moment where God is saying, listen, you guys are going into exile because you haven't done this stuff. I'm bringing this punishment so that you understand who I am. He's saying, and in this moment, if you repent, you will live. Always there is grace upon grace. Something Matt said last week really stuck with me. So I asked him for the reference from John Mark Homer where he talks about what end of the story we start from really affects how we understand. So if we start with theology, who God is, and then think about anthropology, who am I, what does it mean to be human, and then sociology, how then do I live? If we do it that way round, we have a chance of getting things in the right order. If we think about how does society do things, and then what then does that mean about me, and then how then does that make me understand God, we're going to get that very, very wrong. I thought of a good example, or I think it's good. (laughs) Let's think about money. If I'm over here and I think, oh, okay, sociologically, what's my understanding of money? Well, I work to earn money, and money seems very important. And when I have money, then I buy things, and then other people seem to have things, and then I feel happier. And it actually makes my life easier to have money, because I know it doesn't make me happy, but it certainly makes things easier if I can pay my bills and I do all that stuff. So money uh, seems to be something that I can earn and that I want to accrue and I want to get more of. That's the sociological standpoint of money. We live in a capitalist society where more is better, and the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, 
we hope that we're in the band of rich so that we're getting richer and richer and not poorer and poorer so that our houses are accruing value and uh, you know we're making more money and we're doing all that right so money from a sociological standpoint is like yeah I want that I want more of that I'm going to keep it it's going to make me feel safe for the future and all of those things that's our if we live in our society today which we do I don't know why I said if there <laughs> As we live in our society today, that is society's view of money. Therefore, if I think about what that means to be human, it means I'm owed money. I should have money. I can earn it. I get it myself. I'm here to have money and to have things. That seems to be quite a lot of the point of life. And that will make me happy. When I have a yacht, I will be happy. I actually don't think I would. A yacht isn't for me, but other things. So then if I understand God through those lenses, already I'm looking at a lens down there of money where I'm like, oh yeah, money is really important. I must have all the money and all the money must come to me. And then it means to be human is that I'm here to make money and have money. And then if I think about God through that lens, I'm thinking, oh, God must be interested in money. And he must be interested in earning things. His economy must work on earning things because all of this is about earning, isn't it? I don't, just, nobody just gives me money over here. So over here, my understanding of God must be, I'm going to have to earn things. I'm going to have to do things to get the stuff that God gives, because that's how the economy works. Economy where I earn stuff, that must mean as a human, I use my skills and that's who I am to earn things. And then I understand God. If I'm good, he will give me money and more things. That's a really false understanding of God, not seen anywhere in scripture. If we start here, with our theology. In James it says God is the giver of all good things, every good and perfect gift. In Philippians 4 it says he is the meter of all needs. My iPad really disagreed with the word meter. He is the meter of all needs. So perhaps if I don't have it, I don't need it. He's the, if we think about the story of creation, all the way back in Genesis, what did God create? Literally everything they needed. They had safety, they had food. They didn't even have to, listen, what I realized this week was I'm excited for the Garden of Eden because one of the things I hate about gardening, well, two things. One is bugs, and I don't think they're going to go away. But sec the second thing I hate is I'm constantly having to water the thing. In Genesis, just came up from the ground. Adam didn't even have to water the garden. It just came up out of the ground. How cool is that? Anyway, he's the creator of all. He gave them everything they needed, including a mate to live with and all the things they needed. God is the provider. It says in Psalms, he's the cattle on a thousand hills. It's his. It talks about all the time in the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone in the Bible is rich. It means that God gives you everything that you need. Who am I then? I am a child of God. God loves me. God will provide everything I need. So then how do I live? Well, I live with the understanding that God will provide everything that I need. If I need something, I'm going to ask. Do I have to earn it all myself? Not always. Can I? Sure. Is what I need sometimes a job? Yes. But my understanding starts with who God is, not with how society lives. And then I try and retrofit who God is onto that. That's an absolute nonsense, isn't it? Surely the God who created everything can't be like, well, you go about your day and see how that works out and then describe me according to your own ideas. No. <laughs> so, with money, if God asks me to give money, I can give it freely, knowing that if I need it back, he'll give it back. Different understanding of who I am 
and how I'm supposed to live will depend on my view of God, right? So I started thinking about, okay, Ezekiel's talking to these people about obedience. Basically, that is what he's talking about. His whole message is like, look, obey, repent, live, do the stuff I've said, be obedient. It's all going to work out. All the way through, that's his message. So I started thinking about, okay, where do I see obedience in the Bible? I see it in Genesis. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, here's the first thing. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will die. So Adam had no worries. Everything was taken care of, including a mate, food, water from the ground, companionship with God, peace, life eternal, no weeds. Maybe no bugs. I feel like those are post-fall. Or pain, or tears, or sadness, or suffering. There was nothing. Surely there were no wasps in Eden. You're not like wandering around, not with any clothes on, thinking, oh, there's a wasp's nest. Surely those are post-fall. Anyway, the first thing God does in the Garden of Eden is he gives them a command. He says, here's what you need to do. But he also gives them a choice. He says, you can eat from any tree, live in perfect safety. The one thing you can't do is eat from this tree. So he gives them a choice. And then he leaves them to it. Because the thing about obedience, the first thing I've learned is that obedience must be freely given. It cannot be the only option, because that's then not obedience. That's just you being forced into a corner. Obedience must come out of having two options to choose from, and you decide. You have free choice about what you're going to do. And that's why the Israelites and I am probably so frustrating to God. He's like, okay, I have given you free choice, but it's obvious what the right one is. <laughs> like, don't eat of this tree, otherwise all of this goes away. It's obvious in that, isn't it, what the right choice is. I'd be thinking, hmm, that tree looks tempting, but what about all of this? I think I would, but actually in reality, I do the same thing. God says, here's a choice, and I go, hmm, yes, okay, I can see that that is the right thing to do, God, but also, what about these things over here? And the Israelites did exactly the same thing. But the first thing we need to know about obedience is that it must be a free choice to opt in to something. Obedience where there is no choice isn't really obedience. So God chooses Israel to be his holy nation. He takes care of them, and yet they mess up continuously. He gives them this law. He gives them this way to be right. So then I think, okay, let's track through a bit more obedience in the Bible because let's not just take Genesis because that's just one verse, but let's see if we can find an arc of obedience through the Bible where we get to Ezekiel who's saying, listen, repent and live. In Samuel it says... 1 Samuel 15, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So God has actually given them all of this law and ritual and everything else, and yet he's saying, look, that is one thing, but actually your obedience is what matters. It isn't that you just perform these rituals. It isn't that you just come to church. It isn't that you turn up every week. Obedience is what counts to me. It isn't that you're just here. It isn't that you go to the temple and you do all these things it is about your heart you have got to choose me obedience is about choosing God but in Hebrews I'm going to get Claire to read it because it's long and you're probably sick of my voice after saying above you have neither desired nor have you taken delight in the sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin which are offered according to the law 
Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. And so he does away with the first covenant as a means of atoning for sin based on animal sacrifice, so that he may inaugurate and establish the second covenant by means of obedience. And in accordance with this will of God, we who believe the message of salvation have been sanctified, that is, set apart as holy for God and his purposes through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, once and for all. I made you read that in the Amplified. Sorry. (laughs) There's so much more meaning in the Amplified. But in Hebrews, it confirms that you have neither desired nor have you taken delight in sacrifices... He does away with the first covenant as a means of atoning for sin so that he can establish a second covenant by means of obedience. It's not about what you're doing. It's about your heart. It's about opting in. It's about choosing me. It's about not going after idols. It's about understanding who I am and choosing me time after time. Stop choosing the rubbish this world is offering you. Choose me. Don't worry about these rituals and sacrifices. Some of them are useful, but actually choose me in your heart. Don't just do those. That's not meaningful if your heart isn't choosing me. Don't think that just if you come, I guess, to the Israelites, if you just come to the temple and do your little sacrifice here and then you go off and worship Baal somewhere else and sacrifice your children on an altar over there, don't think that this is going to be enough because that is just a ritual. Don't think that you can come to church and be like, oh, church, I go to church every Sunday and then go out and do whatever you want in the world. That isn't obedience. That's just ritual. You just come here. If you're not choosing God in your heart every day, in all your decisions and the things that you do, then just come in here. It's just a ritual. God says, listen, that in and of itself is a thing. Sure, church is good. But it's your heart that I want. It's not just the turning up. It's your heart that I want. So obedience isn't about ritual and mindless repetition. So it's about choice. It's about a free choice. It's not about mindless repetition of things. Why be obedient then? What even does it mean? In John, I'll read this one, Claire, so it's really long. Listen to this passage in John and think about how many times it talks about obedience in this passage. John 14, 16 to 7. Matt's got his Bible half open, waiting for me to give the reference. John 14, 16, 17, just in the NIV, so it'll only be 10 minutes. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you. So this is in a whole passage where Jesus is talking about, I'm going, but the Holy Spirit is coming. I'm going, you're not going to see me anymore, but I'm sending you a helper. So this is the passage where Jesus introduces this idea. Listen to what he says. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. And then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, I like how they've made that clear, not the bad one said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Have you ever asked that question? God, why am I having these epic encounters with you and that's not just happening to everybody? Good question, Judas, not of Iscariot. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me 
will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home in them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Here's 1 John 5. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. For the true love of God is this, that we habitually keep his commandments and remain focused on his precepts. And his commandments and his precepts are not difficult to obey. Not difficult. So it can't be as hard as we make it, right? But also, obedience is about love. Obedience is about love. It's got to be offered freely. It's a choice that we opt into. It's not about mad rituals that we just carry on every day. It's about love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. What were the greatest commandments? They asked Jesus. They tried to catch him out. They were like, so, what's the most important commandment? Jesus was like, love God, love your neighbor. Anyone who doesn't obey that command isn't opting in, isn't choosing God, isn't being obedient. Obedience is about love. I don't do those things because it's just uh, what I have to do. Obedience comes out of my relationship, my encounters with God, where I know I am so loved by God, where I know that I have met this God who is mighty and awesome and will provide all my needs and is glorious and amazing. And so then that means that if I am his child, then the way that I live is completely wrapped up in my love for him, who he is, who he thinks I am, who he says I am. Obedience is about love. It's quarter two. Can I tell you some stories about obedience in my life? You can get up and leave if you want. <laughs> can I keep going? <laughs> so everybody, you need, if you need to leave, just go. I'm going to keep going. Um, here are some things I have learned about obedience in my life. Like I said, I've been a Christian a long time. Really, 40, almost 40 years. Um, and I have been obedient to God in ways... Uh, that uh, over the years, lots of different ways, and hopefully mostly daily in a kind of normal, ongoing way. But there have been moments in my life where I've done like big obedient things. So the things that I have learned about obedience is that it sets me free. So I don't even remember what the situation was, but I was 16, I went to Spring Harvest, God really convicted me about a lie that I had told my best friend back at home. I don't even remember what it was. I wrote her a letter from Spring Harvest. I felt so convicted. God was like, you need to sort that out. And I was like, well, she's not even here and I need to sort it out now because my heart is like pounding with the conviction of God, I need to be set free from this. I wrote her a letter and I sent it from Spring Harvest. When I got home, she was like, I don't even remember you said that, but thanks for sending the letter. But it set me free. 
Obedience sets me free. If God convicts me of something in my heart, it sets me free when I'm obedient and I put that thing right. Sometimes it's just about my relationship with God and how much he loves me. One time I was in Wisconsin. The next day I was flying to Kansas City to go to the International House of Prayer. I had nowhere to stay. God said to me, book a car, don't book anywhere to stay. I was like, all right, seems weird, God, but I'll just be obedient. So the night before I was going, I was chatting to my friend's dad. He said, where are you staying? I was like, don't know. <laughs> God said, book a car, don't book anywhere to stay. He was like, oh, we've got a contact. Do you want, us, do you want your name? I was like, sure. So I rang the Sadie Mary. She was like, yeah, turn up at this address. Give me an address. I turn up at the address. The next day, I go, I get the car, I turn up at the address. As I'm driving into Kansas City from the airport, there's a street called Charlotte Street. My middle name's Charlotte. And I was like, huh, Charlotte Street. I turn up at this address. This woman's not there. I was like, I'm looking for Mary. They were like, she's gone home. I was like, um, <laughs> okay. One of them was like, should I ring her? I was like, yeah. So they rang her. She was like, oh, I forgot all about her. Can one of you take her home? So one of these girls in this building is like, I'll take you home. I was like, okay. <laughs> she took me home. Guess where she lived? Charlotte Street. That is not a miraculous story of anything other than God knows me and loves me and he knows my middle name and on the way in I saw it and on the way back I stayed there for three days and made some great friends. What a weird story. Just being obedient. Nothing miraculous happened out of it other than God knows me and he loves me. It can be about God's provision, obedience. Who remembers mini-disc players? Hmm, about four people. I was really into mini-discs, <laughs> really into them. And uh, I saved up, I was a student, I saved up and I bought a personal mini-disc player with foam earphones, you know the ones, little orange earphones. I'd had it for about three weeks and my friend was going on a gap year and God was like, give her your mini-disc player. I was like, <laughs> Listen, God, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a student and I really saved up that mini's player and it's like a big deal to me. I really love it. I, like no one else has one. I feel pretty cool. He was like, give it. He's like, okay. I gave it to her. And uh, she flew off, landed in Hong Kong, emailed me and she was like, oh crap, I left your mini's player in Heathrow. Devoted, devastated, had given my prized possession I saved up for to this stupid person who left in Heathrow. I was like, God, why? But God gave me another one. Somebody just gave me one. They were like, I don't really want this anymore. Do you want it? I was like, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sometimes it's about provision. Sometimes I am the provider. Sometimes I'm the receiver. Sometimes it protects me. Um, yeah, sometimes it protects me. I've got a really good friend who we loved each other for a long time, but he does not love the Lord. And he told me that I was basically, he thought I was more or less just talking to a Disney character. That was his impression of what my sort of spiritual life is, not really open to that. But he really loved me and I really love him. And he was like, why are we not married? I was like, well, because... You don't love the Lord, and I don't want to live, I don't want to partner with you on that. And he did not understand that at all. But my obedience protects me from pairing up with something that actually I couldn't have lived like that. 
what I do with my money, what I do with my time is all bound up with the person I become one with. And then how do we match that up? For me, I was like, oh, and I knew that that's what God was saying. I don't think that's always the answer that God gives, but that was the answer for me. And even though it was really hard, it's protected me from something that I actually in the end probably would have resented. But it's costs. Sometimes it's scary. I was walking through Bristol City Centre one day and there was this couple and they were having an argument and he looked quite aggressive and she was crying and I was like, oh, God was like, go and pray for them. I was like, oh, no, God. So I scuttled into Debenhams. I thought, no. As I walked into Debenhams, I went up on the escalator. I saw them coming into Debenhams. I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> so I kept going up the escalator. I thought, where are they not going to go? Swimsuits. It was like the winter. I was like, right, I'm in swimsuits, just hanging about until I thought they'd left Debenhams. I went back down the escalator. They were stood at the bottom of the escalator. I was like, God, why? These people are following me. Anyway, I knew. I was like, oh, I've got to be a beat. You know, you have that like, I've got to do it. And I was like, hey. No, sorry, I wasn't that aggressive. I was like, oh, hey, um, could I, can I offer to pray for you? And they were like, no. Like literally shouted in my face, no, and like ran off. And I was like, God, what on earth was that about? But I learned something. Like I didn't die of embarrassment or shock or anything else. I was just obedient. Didn't come off. Other times that has worked. I've gone up to people in the street, prayed for them, and that's been, sometimes it changes people's lives. Other times it's just about my obedience. But obedience is what God wants. I don't know whether you are sat there this morning thinking there is something that God has been asking me to do for ages or there is some area of my life where I need to sort this out because I am not being obedient. There is something the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on this morning where you're feeling and you're like, you're squirming something and you're like, <laughs> trying to get away. Listen, I'm with you. I am at times running in the opposite direction thinking, no God, I don't want to do that. Please don't make me do that. It's about love. God loves you. He pursues you with a passion and an interest in every single area of your life. He pursues you like he did the Israelites. He will give you grace upon grace upon grace because he is good. We have to opt in to obedience. He's never going to make us because it isn't obedience if it's forced. We have to opt in. We're going to worship. But as we do, just allow, or not just, this is a big thing. If you want to, ask Holy Spirit to point out to you things where you need to be obedient. And he will because he's good and he wants right relationship with you. And it might just take a moment where you turn, repent, turn, and live. He loves you. I'm going to be over here. Other people in the prayer team are going to be over here. If you need somebody to stand with you and witness your obedience, sometimes I find that helpful. Keeps me accountable. If you need that, get over here. We'll pray for you. But do it because God loves you. He has got good plans for you. He wants the best for you. And all we have to do is say, yes, I'm in. I'll be obedient. Thanks. <laughs>